Christopher Dansby and Shane Walker, known to their parents and siblings as joyful bundles of happiness, were innocuous and innocent children of Harlem, New York City. Their carefree benevolence and youthful wonder were cut short by unexplainable, unsolved disappearances in May and August of 1989, leaving all who knew them across the neighborhoods of New York grasping for answers in a sea of evidence that drowned us all in doubt. As a hope to provide more substantial reasoning built upon observable evidence and situational analysis, this is an examination of the Dansby and Walker vanishings and the confounding mystery at the Martin Luther King Jr. Playground in New York. This is Cold Case Detective. The first missing boy was Christopher Milton Dansby, born on March 30th, 1987, to mother Alison Dansby in New York City, New York. Because of the lack of media coverage and general age of the case, there is hardly any information regarding Christopher's first two years of life. What we do know is that Christopher was also known by his popular nickname of Choo Choo and spent a great deal of time with his family and extended relatives, such as his cousins or older brother. He had boundless energy and endless charm, emitting a joyful freedom that so many toddlers exude early on in childhood. He loved to play and wasn't afraid to engage with other kids his age. Due to the lack of a biography or much personal information being available, I'll leave you with a description of what Christopher looked like the day he was last seen. Christopher was an African-American boy standing at two foot six and weighing 30 pounds. He sported jet black hair, brown eyes, and had two distinctive marks on his body, a burn scar on one of his thighs and a birthmark on the back of his neck in the shape of a figure eight. On the day he went missing, he wore a blue jacket over a shirt with floral prints, a pair of blue jeans and bluish green shoes. He was two years old at the time he vanished, during one of his many playdates with his mother, grandma, and brother. The second boy who went missing was Shane Anthony Walker, born on December 7th, 1987, to mother Rosa Glover in the borough of Manhattan in New York City. Much like the case of Christopher, little data is available in terms of profiling Shane Walker, also considering he wasn't even two years of age at the time he vanished. Shane was a shy toddler and wary of strangers, usually crying out when faced with someone he didn't know. However, that did not stop his smile from lighting up a room with infectious positivity. His parents had a pet chimpanzee that Shane liked feeding bits of banana through a cage, and overall loved monkeys and stuffed teddy bears, like many children of his age. He also loved amusement rides at Disney World, one of the last places the Walker family ventured to just a week before Shane disappeared. Like Christopher Dansby a few months before him, Shane was a very young African-American boy, taller for his age at three feet, yet weighing only 23 pounds. He also had dark black hair and brown eyes with a small scar just underneath his chin. 
At the time Shane vanished, his hair was braided and pulled back in a ponytail, as was the style at the time. He was also wearing a white and blue shirt, a pair of light blue pants, and white sneakers with the LA Gear logo. Shane Walker was just four months shy of his second birthday, on the evening where he disappeared, after a trip to the park with his mother turned into another night of horrors in Harlem, New York City, 1989. Let us now turn to the timeline of events that led to the unsolved disappearances of Christopher Dansby and Shane Walker. On the evening of Thursday, May 18th, 1989, Alison Dansby takes her two-year-old son, Christopher Dansby, to the Martin Luther King Jr. Towers Playground at the corner of Lenox Avenue and 114th Street in the Harlem neighborhood of Manhattan, New York. She is joined by Christopher's brother, Levan, Christopher's grandmother, and a few other relatives ranging from aunts to cousins. At some point during the playdate, Alison Dansby asks Christopher's grandmother to keep an eye on him while she runs to the store. Trusting her family enough to leave Christopher behind, playing with his brother and cousins because she doesn't have his stroller with her. Christopher's grandmother agrees, and Alison departs. Within the 20 minutes Alison is at the store, Christopher is spotted playing with two unrelated children, a pre-adolescent girl and a young boy, both older than Christopher. What they're doing isn't exactly specified, but they're seen playing with a red ball. This is the last confirmed sighting of Christopher Dansby. At just about 7pm, Christopher's brother, Levin, realises his younger brother is missing. Levin calls out his brother's nickname, Choo Choo, but hears no reply. He then calls out for their mother, frightened by the shocking disappearance of Christopher. Shortly thereafter, Alison returns from the store, finding her family looking around the playground for Chris. They are unable to find any trace of him, and the police are summoned to the area. When the police arrive later that evening, they immediately canvass the playground and surrounding suburbs for witnesses. Detectives are able to locate and interview a couple of other children who were playing on or near the MLK playground earlier that fateful evening. One kid in particular, an unidentified seven-year-old boy, told investigators he saw Christopher walking along West 111th Street, a couple of blocks away from the housing project, side by side with a middle-aged African-American male of about 25 to 30 years old, who stood six feet tall, was of a thin build, and sported braided or dreadlocked hair. Unfortunately, police cannot locate the girl and boy who had been playing with Christopher, or find their red ball. They agree the red ball either disappeared with them, or was kept by Christopher when he vanished. Throughout the night of May 18th and into the early morning hours of May 19th, NYPD is dispatched across all five boroughs to keep an eye out for sightings of Christopher Dansby, the braided man, or any toddler matching his description. It is unknown if a sketch of the man was ever released to the public at the time, but regardless, no results are uncovered, and law enforcement finds zero tangible leads outside of the seven-year-old boy's testimony. Considering this testimony to be legitimate, authorities officially consider Christopher Dansby's disappearance the outcome of a kidnapping. Over the next few months, law enforcement continues searching for Christopher and keeping an eye on the neighborhood for any suspicious activity. It is assumed that the Dansby family themselves are thoroughly investigated by the NYPD and ruled out as suspects. 
Tragically, Christopher Dansby's missing persons report is never given much primetime news coverage or widespread awareness, and goes largely unnoticed by the general public, at least until spring turns to summer and a new, mid-August mystery reignites the case. On the afternoon of August 10th, 1989, Rosa Glover takes her son, 20-month-year-old Shane Walker, to the Martin Luther King Jr. playground outside of their apartments at the corner of 114th Street and Lenox Avenue, the same exact location where Christopher Dansby disappeared three months before. At some point between 4 and 5pm, Rosa sits on a park bench with Shane to share a snack. While they sit and relax under the late day sunshine, a pair of children, consisting of a pre-adolescent girl and a younger boy, approach Rosa and her son and ask if they can play with him on the playsets. Rosa tells the girl and the boy that Shane is quite young, but they say they don't mind. Rosa finally agrees, and the duo take Shane to play on the swings and slides. Not long after Shane leaves to play with the anonymous girl and boy, an unidentified African-American male with a crippled arm enters the playground and sits down next to Rosa on the bench. The man strikes up a very bizarre conversation with Rosa, mentioning how parents don't pay enough attention to their kids, and that, quote, things happen to children. He also brings up uncomfortable topics such as crime, and more specifically kidnapping. Halfway through his ramblings, the man starts showing Rosa scars around his body that he received from participating in various fights. At just around 5pm, as the conversation with the man ends, Rosa realises she's been distracted from monitoring Shane and loses track of his whereabouts. She looks around the playground but finds no trace of him, nor of the girl and boy who asks to play with him. For the next few minutes, Rosa screams out Shane's name, pleading for his return, but Shane does not come out of hiding. Instead, Rosa sees the girl and boy return to the playground by climbing through a hole in the fence. She confronts the children, who said they had to depart for a little while, but didn't take Shane with them, leaving him in the park instead. Rosa doesn't feel right about the situation, and takes the two children to the police station soon thereafter. She reports Shane as missing, and the responding officers interview the girl and boy at length. Authorities learn the girl, 10 years of age, and the boy, 5 years of age, are actually brother and sister. Not only that, but the kids were also the same children who were seen playing with Christopher Dansby, three months prior to the day he disappeared. However, Despite the eerie coincidence, the children are released after police obtain nothing of use in their interrogation. The NYPD wastes no time in bringing in the cripple-armed man for questioning either, after quickly tracking him down when Rosa filed her reports. Much like the two children, though, the unidentified man offers no new insights, and the police seemingly feel he is of no suspicion, letting him walk free. After the unidentified man and the brother and sister are ruled out by the police as suspects, investigators turn next to Rosa Glover's family and Shane Walker's biological father, who had been separated from the family. Once again, he and all the relatives are assumed innocent, and detectives are left back at square one, feeling Shane's abduction is by that of a stranger. Sometime in the early stages of the manhunt, authorities do receive a tip regarding a sighting of a small African-American child resembling Shane Walker, partnered with an older African-American male. 
This suspect is listed as 5 feet 8 inches tall, probably between 19 and 24 years of age, wearing a white or yellow shirt and acid-washed jeans. Then, a few days after the disappearance, Rosa receives an anonymous and cryptic phone call, in which a voice explains to her that Shane is dead and buried in an abandoned building somewhere in the city. The source of the call is never traced, but detectives still investigate the claim. They are unable to find anything concrete, and the tip is left to sit in the back of Rosa's mind. Eight years after the two children went missing, and no new leads have surfaced. However, sometime in 1997, Rosa Glover is awarded $10,000 in death benefits from a life insurance policy she bought for her son a mere two weeks before Shane vanished. She had actually attempted to collect it only seven weeks after the initial disappearance, but according to her, it was at the recommendation of the salesman himself, who had sold Rosa the policy right before their flight and ensuing trip to Disney World in Florida. Despite the suspicious timing of the life insurance policy, investigators never felt it had any correlation to Shane's fate. The last major wrinkle in the case comes years later, when Rosa Glover appears on the Montel Williams show, asking for further awareness to be spread on the mysterious disappearance of her son. The show reignites some public awareness of the case, and also features an appearance by infamous psychic Sylvia Brown, who tells Rosa that Shane is alive and well, under the care of unknown parents, living affluently and learning the piano. Due to Brown's suspect and criminal history, and the notorious unreliability of similar talk show tactics, the vision is never seriously considered by law enforcement, and the tragic cases of Christopher Dansby and Shane Walker remain as cold as they were in 1989. There are, frustratingly, very few pieces of evidence or information of merit centred in the Dansby and Walker case files. Besides a few possible sightings of the boys with older men, there is nothing physical to tie the boys to each other or to anyone else. There was no fingerprints or footprints lifted from the playgrounds, there were no DNA strands procured from the suspects, nor was there any security camera footage or audio clips to analyse in the aftermath. Rather, investigators were left with nothing but two children missing without a trace, as if they had disappeared into thin air before the eyes of a few innocent bystanders. That being said, if there's one oddity about the circumstances surrounding the cases, it's the two children who were seen playing with both Christopher and Shane moments before they vanished. It wasn't learned until after the children were interviewed by police that they had been associated with both cases, but when it was discovered that they had been on the playground on May 18th and August 10th, suspicions skyrocketed. Could they have been pawns in an abduction plot schemed up by serial kidnappers? It is certainly not impossible. But if the police were 100% sure after their interrogation that the 10-year-old girl and her 5-year-old brother were innocent parties, it may be unlikely that they were unwilling moving parts in a theoretically terrifying kidnapping plot. The most difficult aspect to the mysterious pair of siblings is that there is simply no information out there about who they were or where they came from. 
Of course, the general public would not be given this information back then in 1989 as they were just children and their privacies were rightfully protected. However, because the police never confirmed nor denied the families of the girl and boy were vetted by detectives, it is impossible to paint a full picture of their involvement. Amateur sleuths and active followers of the Dansby and Walker cases have generally agreed that the presence of the sister and brother was nothing more than a coincidence, and that they probably also lived in the housing project adjacent to the playgrounds and were frequent visitors to the park. Is it creepy that they just so happened to be around two kidnappings within a calendar year? Yes, absolutely. But to assume it signals a nefarious plot involving a 10-year-old girl and a 5-year-old boy into baiting toddlers for kidnappers is perhaps an ultimately baseless suspicion. That being said, we do want to focus on these siblings mainly because of their age at the time of the disappearances. Because they were so young, there's a good chance either one or both of the unidentified children are still alive today. The girl would be about 41 years of age, and the boy around 36. While it may seem highly unlikely that we will ever find where they are now, there's always a chance they could be out there with valuable information. If you are someone who fits these demographics and lived in Harlem, New York, or that general vicinity in 1989, or if you know someone who could fit the profile of the mysterious brother and sister, you may hold the one clue that police need in solving these cases. Police interrogations can be incredibly frightening for anyone, let alone two small children. So it is very important that we hear their accounts of those two tragic evenings once more, without the harsh light of interrogation rooms and the abrasive personalities that linger within police departments. You never know what could jog a memory, a memory that could unlock an array of answers in the fight to find Christopher Dansby and Shane Walker. Let us now turn to the main theories surrounding that pair of tragic disappearances of the summer of 1989. Like all missing children cases, early investigative efforts spawned theories that the families of each boy were somehow involved. However, as previously mentioned, these assumptions were quickly proven false. Even looking at surface-level evidence, it's hard to fathom these mothers were complicit in their own toddler's tragedy. In Christopher's disappearance, he was left under the care of multiple family members. If Alison Dansby left intentionally, knowing her son would go missing, wouldn't one of the other relatives have seen something? Christopher's own brother, Levin, has said for years he has no idea who could have done it. It simply doesn't make sense for the entire family to be behind an innocent child's erasure without leaving a shred of evidence. The same can be said for Rosa Glover. Three witnesses at the scene all placed Rosa on the bench when Shane disappeared, proving that she couldn't directly have been the one to take him away or surrender him to kidnappers. Skeptics love to point out the life insurance policy she took out only two weeks before the mystery unfolded. They claim it points to an ulterior motive within Rosa, plotting to get rid of her own son to collect the money from the insurance claim. However, it's important to remember she bought this policy before taking Shane on a trip across the country, 
that involved air travel and amusement parks. In fact, Rosa herself has said the only reason she made a claim on Shane's supposed death was because the salesman who sold her the policy told her to do so. It is easy and understandable to shift blame onto the adults who get distracted from watching their young children. But it is unnecessary to vilify the mothers and construct conspiracies around them purely because of this error. There is only one true villain here, and that is the man or woman who took Christopher Dansby and Shane Walker. So, if the immediate families weren't involved in the boys' disappearances, could they have been lured away from the playground by someone familiar to them? Other theorists believe so. Rosa Glover has said multiple times that Shane was afraid of strangers and would not initiate any interaction himself. In fact, Rosa stated that Shane would cry out whenever someone unfamiliar would interact with him. This is why she believes whoever took him did so quickly and used something familiar to avert a loud reaction. She makes the case that if a stranger had walked up to him and asked him to walk away, she would have heard his shouts and pleas for his mother. It's also why Rosa doesn't believe it was Shane who was spotted with the man in the acid-washed jeans later that evening on August 10th. Considering this, we must ask if there is anyone connected to both the Dansby and the Walker families that could have schemed both kidnappings in a subtle and coaxing way. Again, there's not much information out there to support this idea. However, it is worth noting that there are a few other similarities in the twin cases that may withhold important details. First, both Christopher and Shane lived in the same building at the same housing complex, meaning the kidnapper could have learned of both families' routines and gained the children's trust through interactions around the apartments or by being visible throughout each week. If the children knew their kidnapper as a neighbor or simply a friendly face from where they lived, they might have been more susceptible to approaching them before they vanished. Non-family abductions are incredibly rare, but are much more likely if the abductor knows their victims in some fashion. Secondly, the families were also connected through relationships extended relatives had with each other. A decade before the disappearances, Alison Dansby's sister had a falling out with Rosa Glover's niece over a man they both knew. While this means absolutely nothing in regards to Christopher and to Shane, it's worth mentioning to show the degree of separation between families was minuscule, and that the chances of someone knowing both families well enough to prey on their children are higher than one might imagine in a city as huge as New York. The most widely discussed theory by both authorities and those following the case is that Christopher Dansby and Shane Walker were abducted by a serial kidnapper to be sold into an underground black market for illegal baby adoptions. To understand this theory though, we must go back to the origin of its discussion, born from another New York City cold case from just a few months before Christopher disappeared, involving another missing little black boy and his murdered mother. Monique Rivera was living in Bushwick, a working-class neighborhood in North Brooklyn of New York City, back in the spring of 1989. She had just given birth to a third baby boy named Andre Bryant, the youngest of three children to her and her husband, Timothy. The family lived on Madison Street and made a modest living, caring for their three boys and laying a foundation for future success. In late March of that year, however, Everything changed for the worse. Monique went out for a walk with her then six-week-old Andre, 
While outside, she was approached by two African-American women, one appearing to be in her 30s and heavy set, the other appearing to be in her early 20s and sporting long, red hair. The woman asked Monique to go shopping with them, to which she agreed. During their first shopping trip, the unidentified women showed a keen interest in Monique's newborn son, asking to hold him on multiple occasions, more preoccupied with the baby than Monique herself. Monique didn't really think anything of it, and was just happy to receive the gifts the women bought her at the mall, including gold slacks and a black top. At the end of the shopping spree, the women asked Monique if she'd like to go out with them the next day to shop at a different mall in White Plains, New York. Monique agreed, and plans were solidified that night when she called her sister-in-law Patricia to babysit her three children while Timothy was at work. The following day, on Wednesday, March 29th, Patricia arrived at the Bryant's family Bushwick home and answered the phone after it rang a few times. On the other line was a lady asking for Monique. Patricia tells Monique of the call, and Monique informs her that it was the two women she had plans with, calling from a phone booth around the corner. Monique told Patricia to let the women know she'd meet them out there in a few minutes. A few moments later, Monique left, but returned not long after to retrieve Andre. Patricia asked why she returned to grab her infant son, and Monique said the women wanted Andre to tag along. Patricia shrugged off this strange request, and Monique and Andre left once again. A little later, at around 2pm, a passerby gave an eyewitness report of Monique getting into a burgundy car with possible Maryland license plates, along with Andre and the two unidentified women. This would be the last confirmed sighting of Andre Bryant. That night, neither Monique nor her son returned home, and the rest of the family went out searching. It wouldn't be until the following day, on Thursday, March 30th, when a jogger spotted a crumpled body by the road that any sign would be found. The police arrived on the scene and confirmed the body belonged to Monique, lying 20 miles away from where she was last seen entering the burgundy car. Her son, Andre, was nowhere to be found. An autopsy report showed Monique had been struck on the head by a blunt object, as well as asphyxiated, most likely via a scarf. She also had severe bruising on her hands, as well as chipped nails, suggesting Monique had put up a fight before she perished. Authorities were quick to investigate the heavy-set and red-haired women she had last been seen with, however they were unable to locate anyone matching their description or a vehicle fitting the burgundy profile with Maryland plates. Hoping to glean more information about Monique's exact plans, police interviewed Timothy Bryant, quickly removed as a suspect himself, with a solid alibi. Timothy told law enforcement he didn't know who the women were, nor why Monique was so trusting of them, but did mention that she had told Patricia that she knew one of the two women from way back in middle school. Police assumed this was the red-haired woman, as her description matched the age of Monique at the time, yet it did little to spur any further leads in the investigation. Over the years, members of the Bryant family have spoken out with theories of their own, Simone Rivera, Monique's blood sister, believed her death and Andre's disappearance were the result of something in her personal life going wrong, possibly involving a falling out with someone or a bad history with one of the two women catching up to her. Strangely, a few months after Simone talked publicly in 2017 about Monique's murder and the lack of justice brought forth, she was taking a walk with her own sons when an unidentified man grabbed her arm as he passed by them. 
Simone reacted by smacking the man with her cell phone and running off with her two boys when he let go. To this day, Simone wonders if it was connected to her pleas to garner widespread awareness for Monique and Andre again. Timothy Bryant had a different theory. For years, he mentions how he thought Andre was the target of illegal adoption rings operating in a black market of sorts, employing kidnappers to abduct babies in low-income areas around the city to put up with new families. He feels the two women were grooming Monique, waiting for the perfect opportunity to kill her and take Andre for their sick business. After all, they'd been using a fraudulent credit card in their shopping purchases for Monique as to not leave a paper trail. It's also a possible reason for why they called Patricia from a payphone rather than just meeting Monique at her house, being only a block or two away. They wanted to avoid recognition by anyone outside of Monique and were careful as to not attract attention by anybody in the family. Others who agree with this theory stretch it as far as to say the heavyset woman could have been looking for a baby of her own, but couldn't afford adoption, thus turning to the black market. Then the redhead woman, knowing Monique from years back in junior high school, could offer as a point of contact without being too close to Monique or her mutual friends. It involves a lot of hypotheticals, but it can't be completely ruled out. It should also be noted that various private adoption agencies in the New York area argued against the black market theory, stating that while white babies may be potential targets for such an illicit operation, there was a glaring amount of black babies available in adoption centers. However, adoption is never a cheap endeavor, no matter the baby's background, and some folks who desperately want a child may not have the funds nor qualify or pass background checks necessary to adopt in a legal way, which could turn them to the black market. But that begs the question, why would someone commit such a grisly and brutal murder of a mother just to adopt their child? Black market adoption-related abductions have been happening for years, but under much more calculated and non-violent schemes. To resort to extreme violence and homicide would suggest a deeper, more personal motive than taking a child from their parents, unless that child meant something more to the person who abducted them. So, how does this all come back to the cases of Christopher Dansby and Shane Walker? Well, if the black market theory holds any weight at all, it's possible Christopher and Shane were victims of the same scheme, possibly even taken by the same ringleaders. They were all very young African-American boys taken in the evening hours within four and a half months of one another. They were all from New York, and in the case of Christopher and Shane, taken from the same location on a Thursday. If the people behind this were looking for a specific type of child, these three would all fit similar, if not congruent, parameters. All this being said, there is no physical evidence to support any connection between the cases, and the fact of the matter is that everything that hints of a relevant and binding commonality is circumstantial at best. While Christopher and Shane's kidnappings may be connected, the case of Monique Rivera and Andre Bryant probably are not. Bushwick and Harlem are two completely separate neighborhoods in completely separate boroughs in New York. Not only that, but the disappearance of Andre Bryant involves a murder in cold blood, whereas the other two contain no such violence, at least none that we know of. 
Regardless of the various theories, the fact that none of the three boys have been found lends hope to the idea that they could still be out there living a new life, unbeknownst to them, connected or not. Before we divulge our hypothesis of Christopher Dansby and Shane Walker's unsolved disappearances, and the possibly related murder of Monique Rivera and disappearance of Andre Bryant, we want to make it known that our conclusions presented in Cold Case Detective are purely logical speculation based on evidence, circumstance, and factual subtext. We are only privy to the same information presented in each episode, and we do not attempt to promise certainty or an expert guarantee on the findings we reach in closing. We simply observe, research, and report. In the cases of Christopher Dansby and Shane Walker, we believe the boys were taken by an opportunist who followed the families of the boys and tracked their movements, waiting for the perfect moment to strike undetected. They were methodical and skilled, as disgusting as their actions were, making their moves when the mothers of the boys either left them under the care of others or turned their heads for just a brief moment. However, we also believe these boys were familiar with whoever took them, explaining why they didn't scream or make a scene in the split second no one was looking. One possible perpetrator definitely could be the braided man, seen walking with a little boy matching Christopher's description soon after he went missing. We've uploaded a police sketch of this man in our case file photos, so please check that out for a better reference. Where they were going and what happened to them after they left the Martin Luther King Jr. playground is anyone's guess, but it's important to remember that Rosa Glover did receive a call telling her that Shane was buried underneath an abandoned building somewhere in the city. While law enforcement did investigate this tip, and while it does sound more like a sick prank than a legitimate lead, there are endless abandoned buildings around New York City, and to search them all would be practically impossible. But it is one fate we have to consider while we search for answers. We also believe that if the kidnapper who stole Christopher and Shane from their families did so twice, he may have struck again. We've researched the databases on both the Charlie Project website and the National Missing and Unidentified Persons system, and didn't find any other registered missing black boys under the age of three in either New York nor the surrounding states between 1988 and 1990. Only Andre, Christopher, and Shane fit those demographics. However, so many children of colour, and black children specifically, go missing and go unreported, especially in impoverished areas of major cities. If you know of any cases of young children going missing during that time frame in the northeastern United States, please let us know by using our cold case form or sending us an email. We are interested if there are any more cases like Christopher and Shane that need heightened awareness and to be registered in one of the major databanks. If there is evidence of a larger pattern of kidnappings in the area, a serial offender is definitely at large. If you have any relevant information that may help investigators solve these cases, you can also contact the New York Police Department at 646-610-6914 or the New York Housing Police Department at 212-410-8500, or Crime Stoppers at 1-800-577-TIPS. In the meantime, I want to ask you to take a moment and think about Christopher, Shane, 
Andre and Monique as more than characters in a tragedy. Three of these victims were only toddlers, innocent minds with pure hearts. Even Monique herself was just 22 years of age and at the time of her death had been overcoming struggles with addiction and truly making a better life for her and her three boys. She was a living image of recovery and perseverance and should be remembered as protective and loving her son until she took her last breath, fighting for her own survival and attempting to save her beautiful little boy from an unknown fate. And perhaps that is what is so distressing about the mystery at hand, that these three youthful human beings never had the chance to grow up with their birth mothers and fathers and siblings. While there is a definite chance that they are still alive, it's hard not to wonder where they could be had their situations never given way to darkness. Their possibilities truly were endless before they were robbed from the life they deserved. We all deserve to grow in the safety and love of our families. And this was a right that was robbed of Christopher Dansby, Shane Walker, and Andre Bryant, taken away from the people who cared for them most. But it is also rare that we end these cases with a glimmer of hope, that the boys may still be alive, and that is an encouraging thought. There is a chance that these boys, now grown men, can still be found, reunited with their families, and justice done. There may be more to this story, a light at the end of the tunnel of darkness that began in New York, 1989. This is Cold Case Detective. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Cold Case Detective podcast. Should you wish to delve deeper into the mystery, you can follow the case file link included in the show notes, which contains important photographs, documents, maps, and further reading relevant to the case. If you would like to support the show, you can do so by leaving a five-star rating wherever you listen. It really helps us expand our reach and bring awareness to the cases we cover. If you would like us to investigate a specific case, perhaps even one close to home or that of a loved one, please fill out the submission form in the show notes. Thank you for listening, and I'll see you in a fortnight with a new episode.